Hello everybody and welcome to Two Brown Sheeps. I'm Saprina and I'm here with Tezo. Hey Tezo. Hey, great to be here again. <laughs> great to have you. It's been a long time. How have you been? Good, good. A lot of things have been happening. Um, so how have you been? Oh, well, I've been a bit depressed actually after the events in UVA this last week and not even just UVA but around the world. Barcelona, Finland, Ouagadougou, um, Sierra Leone. I mean, there's just so much stuff happening this week where there's been a lot of pain and anger and suffering. And so it's just kind of um, one of those times where I feel like it's important to reflect and to kind of reclaim places that we've known, especially as two people that have lived in many different places. And actually, I thought it would also be a good time for us to introduce our new podcast, Tazu, the new rebranding. So would you like to do us the honors? So as you know, um, we finally decided to call it a podcast for storytellers, as we are storytellers ourselves, and um, we're also interested in other storytellers who have much to bring to the show and also our views on life. Yeah, so we're very excited about that. And so we're going to actually start off this episode, which is going to be on UVA, since that is where both you and I met and where I think there's a lot of stories there. We're going to start off with that and we'll be sharing some testimonies from other UVA students who are there with us uh, and as well as UVA staff. So Tazo, actually starting off, why don't you tell me what your experience at UVA was like? Because you were a transfer student. Yeah, it was. And, you know, for me, I actually applied elsewhere, you know, coming from a conservative household, I was going to university near home and I applied elsewhere at and into UVA. But once I got into UVA, I was like, oh, you know, it's such a big school. I don't know if I, I like it. I want to be here. And I actually dropped out for a semester. But when I returned, it was one of the best things ever because of the people I met. My life changed. My persona changed. I mean, you knew what I was when you first met me. A very shy, reserved, almost very fearful kind of girl. And I think just, you know, as a, it could be a cliche, but, you know, but it was true for me that it broadened my horizons. Just the people I met, you know, the, the professors I had, the stuff that we were um, just the material we were exposed to, it was mind-blowing. And those were the best four years of my life, like the yours as well. That's sweet. And then, but, but for you, you were actually from West Virginia, right? So this moving to Virginia is not that, was it a really big leap? Um, I don't think so as much. Well, it depends. It, it, like I've lived in very much so like in a sort of like an Appalachian town in West Virginia. And then mm. it was just moving one hour and you're in Virginia. So it wasn't mm. that much of a difference other than the fact that I think I was maybe a bit ill-prepared in the schooling system. And yeah. that was probably the biggest difference. And the fact that in my previous town, we had one traffic light in the whole town. What? Really? Yeah, it was only yeah. There was only one traffic light, and um, now when I moved to Virginia, there were there was definitely more than one traffic light, <laughs> but in that town, yeah, right. Wow, I didn't realize you were from such a tiny town. Like, what's your town? What's the name of your town? Again? Um, it's called Romney. It's Romney, West Virginia. Mm. Wow. And you had mentioned to me that you know from where you were, you were the only brown family in that place I mean I wouldn't say it was the only brown family but it was definitely like I could count it you knew who all the brown people were in high school like mm -hmm. there was like legit five of us I yeah. in terms of like uh, the people my parents were hanging out with um 
there were mainly like two other families from Pakistan, one guy from India, and that was it. Wow. There was really okay. no one there. But you know what? Initially, yes, it was very difficult for our family. My mother was always threatening to leave my father and go to a cosmopolitan city. But we mm-hmm. ended up living there for seven years. And it, it taught me to appreciate a different kind of life, like just quieter mm-hmm. and uh, maybe simpler things. So for you, when you came to UVA, did you find it extremely diverse and really international and cosmopolitan then? Uh, yeah, it was definitely overwhelming. And here you, like, you had everything and everyone, you know, mm-hmm. people from uh, different countries. And I remember you were living in the IRC and I, I had met you in directing class. And then I think once I had um, gone to see you in your dorm and that was very international. Yeah, I thought like yeah. there was everyone from everywhere. Yeah, that's true. I was, so I was living in this dorm called International Residential College, which I only discovered my second year. And I discovered it because I ran away from these girls that I was living with who I didn't know because after first year, you were supposed to already choose the people you're going to live with next year. And I remember I just felt, and you don't know anybody the first three months really, right? But I found myself stuck in this lease with these girls who were nice, but I think we just didn't have much in common. And I ultimately ran away to the IRC because I wanted to be in a dorm. I wanted to have more of community and it was amazing I mean it was really really felt like home and okay so okay at this like we know that we've had life-changing moments for sure at UVA and um I guess like now it'd be like what were your sort of reactions when this was coming up on the news I know I was kind of I was horrified because there were moments where there were like images that I was like okay I've eaten breakfast here I remember falling asleep in that building um in a classroom and it was just it was just so I guess unacceptable and like surreal like this was actually happening in a place that I had really come to call home for four years I mean how did you feel Yeah, I just, I mean, you and I were talking when you told me about this and it completely took me by surprise because it's not that I never knew about racism at UVA, I did. I remember all those racist incidents where someone would spray, you know, nigger on somebody's, on somebody's car. I remember incidents where people couldn't get into white fraternities because they were black. I remember that there was a lot of anger and that, you know, when I came to the U.S. was the first time I was meeting African-Americans, really, because before that I had a lot of African friends from West Africa because I went to French schools. And it's completely different, you know. I was not expecting to see this segregation. I was not expecting to see this definite tension, you know, between people because of race. And... I remember there were definite incidents that kind of made me realize that, you know, it's not all rosy. It's not just this beautiful paradise. There's definitely a lot of tension. And if anything, it was actually drama class that made me notice this really deeply because in one of my drama classes, I was paired with this fraternity guy. And he at first was extremely distant with me. He was very, he didn't even know how to talk to me. Because he was not used to, I realized, engaging with people who are not white and who are not in sororities. Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. But that actually, that experience brought us super close. You know, we we had to do a scene together and we actually laughed together and it made such a big difference. And I remember when I went to a fraternity party afterwards and I I didn't go to many. I only went my first year, I remember. 
-hmm. He was so nice to me. He was going out of his way to make me come in. But I knew that a lot of these fraternities, and I stopped going to their parties afterwards. I mean, it, I didn't like their parties anyways. Um, I started noticing that, you know, there was this, there was racism. They would not let anybody in. And even the fraternities that I went to, I went to some black fraternity parties, this lack of inclusion, which which was very disconcerting to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing is for, for me, because I was actually mainly in the South Asian Studies Department and the Religious Studies Department, everyone's like super chill. So I didn't have um, much interaction with other people, if that makes sense. Like other, mm -hmm. you know, like everyone who was who were in those departments, it was a very small department, so you kind of knew everyone. It was like a family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say this, there were instances sometimes when you feel that perhaps your professors who are coming from, you know, like maybe a white background are not always equipped to understand where you're coming from. And this, like at times I felt like if I was writing something that's very particular to me and all of a sudden that, you know, that sense of like, wait, is this becoming too exoticized? And I don't want that. There's just something normal that happens in my daily life, like in my culture, in my home. And I just, I felt that there was a bit of a disconnect there. Um, but in terms of something blatant in Charlottesville, I haven't, I, I haven't experienced but the microaggressions are always there. That I, I will yeah. admit. But actually, you know, I think it's funny that for me, a lot of the racism, quote unquote, that I experienced, if, and I'm really saying quote unquote, because I don't think this is really racism as much as cultural culture, uh, like was from actually in other international students. Like there was this one Indian dude who I obviously don't talk to anymore because he's just a douche, but uh, he, the first time he met me, he was straight from India, right? Fresh off the boat. And the first time he met me and I told him I'm from Nepal, he was like, but you don't have chinky eyes. Oh, wow. You know? And I was like, what the hell, dude? Like, first of all, you don't say that, you know? <laughs> and secondly, there's so many different ethnicities in Nepal. Like, I expect you to know this. You're from India. And then another, you know, comment I would get was... There was this Lebanese guy who used to tell my ex-boyfriend at the time, he was like, you know, why are you going with a brown girl when you can be with a blonde white girl? There's so many of them here. I mean, for me, that's not really racism. I mean, it's kind of a cultural normative thing. And, you know, you, you find different people attractive. That's fine. You know, that's in its own space. Although, wait, no, actually, there was one incident that really did mark me and it was not and it really marked me because I was taking uh, math at UVA for my, one of my requirements was AP math. No, sorry. It was calculus, calculus one or calculus two. I don't remember. And my teacher was this black African, was a black, was an African-American woman, really young. You know, she must have been in her twenties, like mid twenties. And I remember the first thing she said when she came into class was, yes, I'm black. Get over it. She, before she introduced herself, before anything, and everybody was super quiet, and I was I was really shocked. Like I, I remember, I was just like trembling. I was like, "What the fuck?" You know, <laughs> sorry, but I've had black teachers in the past. It's never been, it's never been an issue. Like it's never been something I even thought about. Mm -hmm. But you know, I could I could just imagine like what she had probably had gone through in previous classes to have said that 
And that's just, you know, that like it just bubbles up at a certain point. And it's funny because I just remembered a story because I had applied, I had auditioned for a play in um, Charlottesville, not in the school, not at UVA, but outside in the town. And it's funny because some of the roles that they were always giving me, I think one of the directors was like, you know, can you can you have that Indian accent? And or, you know, I was just like, well, I'm not Indian, so I wouldn't know how to have an Indian accent. But, you know, I, I did it. And then there was a point, though, it crushes you because I don't. it feels wrong. And I didn't have the correct terminology to express properly what I felt then. But what it was, was that she kept on cutting my lines and cutting my roles to the point that, you know, I think visually you don't make sense here. And when someone says that to you, you just know what the issue is, especially when all the characters are white and they were quiet and didn't say anything. And that's when I thought, I'm going to write a message saying, you know, it's over. Like, this is done. I can't. And, you know, the thing is, it's it, it wasn't just there. It was also kind of at the drama department. I actually got into a discussion with the with the with the head at the time um, at UVA. And I had said, like, I don't understand why all the plays that are being performed here, they only are for white roles. Or, you know, like if it's a quirky one, then you then you, you know, you might have one or two minority roles, but everything is white. And he said, look, there's a certain kind of um, group that tends to pay for our productions. And, you know, this group compromises of, uh, you know, these types of people that you also see on stage. So in other words, there's a white, most likely masculine group of people, older generation who pays to see certain kind of plays and they feel like these are the these are the roles available but then it just hit me like why why aren't we you know you're you're supposed to be a creative department why aren't you pushing the boundaries and that's actually what made me drop my theater major because I, I said you know what I'm done I remember walking out like completely like halfway through um, my credits and just saying I'm done with this department I'm gone and I just left mm-hmm. yeah I know I remember that actually a lot of African Americans in my in our drama class remember there were a couple of them and they were saying you know we're never gonna get a role in any of these major plays we have to do our side productions because none of these plays are gonna have these kinds of roles for us and that was really shocking you know but you know Tezo about this incident that happened in Charlottesville what kind of is really interesting is how the media is portraying it, right? Like you had mentioned, there's also been this attack in Barcelona, which is obviously a terrorist attack because it was committed by a brown-skinned person, allegedly. And the attack in Charlottesville is not a terrorist attack. It's freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I, I got into an argument with someone also um, here, like a like an acquaintance who's German, and um, he and I were discussing this, and he's like, you know, it's, it's freedom of speech. I'm like, freedom of speech? Like, the right to speech? How and when did that become synonymous with hate speech? Mm-hmm. Because in Barcelona, they've clearly labeled it a terrorist attack, mm-hmm. and they actually, the police, apparently, like, uh, in the initial reports, I believe, that they didn't actually mention who the person was, right. like, like, man, brown, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But of course, you know... And like the rallies in the U.S., they're very, very quick to sort of point out, you know, these are the things they're this is their, you know, they're Muslim, they're this, yeah. they're or brown or whatever, they're black. They're very quick to point that out. Mm-hmm. And like my thing is like there's something here that's actually putting risk to people's lives mm-hmm. when, you know, I think the media does that mm-hmm. and they have a responsibility w- which they're not aware of mm-hmm. or are they aware of? And they just need, I don't know, numbers. 
No, they are aware of it, of course, but they just, you know, it's again an institutionalized racist thing. Like a lot of media people are not going to be wanting to highlight all of this stuff against white people. And what's interesting is actually Heather Hare, the cousin, her cousin. So Heather Hare was the girl who was actually killed when the car ran into, uh, when the car drove into the crowd in Charlottesville. The cousin actually wrote this really stirring opinion piece where she was saying, you know, there is no space for hate speech. And why do we have to wait until a white person gets killed for this to actually be talked about in the first place? Why do the, why does the white community only feel targeted now after a white person dies that racism exists? Why aren't they doing some, why haven't they been doing something about it from before? But this is the other thing. I remember, um, you know, the Vice documentary that everyone was sharing yeah. on Facebook. And I remember one of the activists saying, like, you know, what do you expect? We have the statue of Thomas Jefferson looking over um, this town. Mm -hmm. And so there's a sense of, like, you know, the history. This is just history happening. Mm -hmm. And um, we have we have to accept it on some level that this is not, you know, such a surprise. Yeah. But, you know, like every time... Every time, like a like a black or brown body is hurt, mm -hmm. or is just like cut up or ends up dead, it just it's just like a fresh wound again for me. Mm -hmm. And I know it is for many people, but I can't seem like, especially when I speak to other people, I don't think because you know, like you were saying in the U.S. when you first came, you had a different sense of what it meant to be like African American because your friends before then were from Africa, and I think. Well, I didn't know, actually, to be honest, I didn't know what it was to be African-American. I didn't. That was a, a whole identity, a whole way of being that I didn't know. I honestly was completely ignorant about it. So, mm -hmm. But then again, when I when I speak to people who are like, you know, let's say from a European country that doesn't have a history of, you know, slavery or immigration as much as the U.S. does, it's really hard to explain to them where I'm coming mm -hmm. from. Yeah, because it's a very American problem, like... I think that's a fact, like the U.S., well, the U.S. has not actually healed the wounds of the past mm -hmm. just because laws have been changed. It doesn't mean that there there isn't this institutionalized racism that still exists and that a lot of people are feeling. On that point, I thought there was a, it was very interesting for me to read this article that was written by an African-American woman about the, the, the presence of Confederate monuments. And she says, mm -hmm. you know, these monuments should not even be out in public. They should be in museums, perhaps, if you have to show them. But they should not be on these places that people walk around because they're actually sending a wrong, the wrong message. Mm -hmm. Of course. And that's the thing, you know, when you have these people come up, especially, you know, the, the white groups, um, the you know, the neo-Nazis and the white supreme, supremacists, they're sort of, you know, the one thing I constantly hear is they're so scared of their narrative being wiped mm -hmm. out, you know? And, you know, the statues on some level represent their yeah. narrative. And I'm like, why can't you just take it home then? Take it home and you can remember your narrative <laughs> if that's what you really want. Mm -hmm. But this is the thing. Why? As, you know, you're not even an oppressed group. Why are you so insecure about your narrative being wiped away when others are struggling to even, like, get mm -hmm. a few sentences of their narrative out? Yeah, no, I, I agree. But for them, you know, when you're paranoid, I feel like it just, it just doesn't, it's not possible to see the world in that way. And what I think is really disturbing is that Trump is calling all these monuments part of the heritage 
the American heritage and that it's not hate. And it, 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 it makes, I mean, I think there is definitely nuance to be found, but it just makes me think, what about all these other people who have heritage that was never recognized in the first it, place? Exactly, you know? exactly. <laughs> and you know, like... How is this heritage and, and not something mm-hmm. else? But this is the thing, like, they, you know, like, this is the thing. I feel like the people in power, especially, they just choose their sides to whatever's convenient. Because as we both saw, he definitely didn't do anything to condemn anyone outright. You know, violence on mm-hmm. both sides or many sides. It's just, mm-hmm. that was just so, like, you know, so vague. And you've already put people in precarious positions by saying that. Yeah, and you know that he knows exactly what he's doing because when he wants to be a direct, he's extremely direct, right? So here he's intentionally being vague and deciding not to alienate a lot of his base. But I'm actually quite worried because I feel like this is just spreading all over now. I mean, just today I saw that there is there was this rally in Berlin of neo-Nazis, which is a huge deal because you're not, I mean, by law, you're not allowed to actually be a neo-Nazi in Germany. Isn't that well, right? Like, I, mean, I, don't, I, was, I was talking to Ben and he was like, oh, you know, these things are normal. It's always happening here, but no one gives, no one really cares at all. And um, mm-hmm. I was reading an article where I think, of course, you can be a neo-Nazi. No one's going to stop you from it. However, uh, for instance... No, but expressing it publicly. Um, yeah, like a poli- apparently the police will step in if you try to say something like anti-Semitic. Obviously, they will step in. There will mm-hmm. be no like neutrality. That's when this is what I like that there's no sense of like, okay, there's no freedom of speech there. You've said it. We have to like, you know, take mm-hmm. you away. And that's mm-hmm. good because it's recognizing a sign of what can escalate into violence, right? Okay, Tazo. Well, I think we'll have to leave it there. I mean, there's so much to say, but we <laughs> clearly are running out of time here. Okay, well, for now, there's so much to talk about this, and I think we will definitely have much more to talk about in the future with all these rallies and incidents unfortunately taking place. Uh, What we will be doing is that in the future, we will have another podcast that's just on the reflection of our friends and acquaintances and associates on their thoughts about being a part of Charlottesville, their lives in Charlottesville, and just basically, you know, the hope for the future. So stay tuned for that and please continue to follow us on social media. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. And definitely, if you want to share your story with us, you're more than welcome. Like we said, our podcast is now a podcast for storytellers. Have a lovely week. Speak soon. Bye for now.